The Unconventional Therapist Guide to Nothing. everyone we are the unconventional therapists and this is your guide to nothing where every week we take a topic theme or thing overanalyze it and make it all make sense in the scheme of life living and mental health my name is dave i am joined here with my co-host greg aka dr dunch oh god well wrong doctor i but i just say that because we were just talking about that doctor off air because mm. he has the same nickname as the person we're going to talk about today because you think he's cute and you forgive him for everything he's done. But he's actually a bum, right? Oh, yeah, that's true. He's no good. But no, we're talking about a different Dr. Death here. Be, let's just, well, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit. I'll do the overview. Wait, can you say that again? A different Dr. Death? Dun, dun, dun. Oh. That felt okay. way too appropriate. I missed that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? Throw it in. Yeah. That's the magic of um, editing? I don't know. You're, you're in charge of all that. We don't edit. Yeah, it's <laughs> just throw it. Yeah, yeah, right. I, ed- people- I edit the shit out of this. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Just Greg's stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. A lot of ums, I do. All right, Dave, let me um, know. Should further ado, without further ado, let me say this. Let me give this overview. Between the years of 1990, I'm glad they were going to the 90s. Anyways, between the years of 1990 and 1998, Dr. Jack Kevorkian would assist 130 patients in their own suicide. Eventually, he would be convicted of second-degree murder and serve eight years, but not before starting a nationwide conversation about an individual with a terminal, incurable illness to have the autonomy to decide how to die. To die with dignity, I think, is, is, was his goal. But there's a lot to talk about here, Dave. A lot. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 for sure. You didn't pause at the appropriate spots. I had to do it in an inappropriate spot. I'm sorry, but do you remember this? This whole thing? Greg, I suggested it. Yo, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if like, yeah, I, re- I was very much, I guess, I guess we were right at that age where it was, this was, this was very happening. We were 10, 11 years old. We were, we were ripe for the pickings on this I was, one. I knew all about it. I was, uh, Dr. Death. All right, Dr. all right, Working Greg. Okay, all right, sorry. Crazy sorry. question here. Okay. You anyway. you remember everything about Dr. Kevorkian, mm-hmm. but so many other things didn't impact you as much. Okay. Like Heaven's Gate, you it felt like that was like Could care less. a flip on your radar at that yeah. time. But Dr. Kevorkian? Yeah. I mean, granted, yes, this was huge on me for, for me too. I definitely have a lot of um, recollection of this whole period. I do, I do know why. I, I do know why it stuck with me so much. And okay. I think a lot of it had to do... And we'll talk about this. I had to do with that Catholic guilt. My family okay. was not feeling Jack Kevorkian. They thought this. So your was family good. wasn't? Yeah, no, they weren't into him. Do you always agree with your family, Greg? <laughs> when I was nine, yeah. So you, would you say you were more of a follower in, <laughs> That's in the right. family? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm a black sheep. <laughs> yeah. Look at me <laughs> now, Dad. Bat or oh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> All, All right. right. So this, before we get to Dr. Kevorkian, I thought okay. it's helpful for people to understand what we're talking about here. Okay. I mean, other than your your delicious overview that you just <laughs> It was clunky this time, but that's yeah. okay. I appreciate it. I mean, you said without further ado, but I thought it was much ado about nothing. So <laughs> well, we, I think that both are, both are fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking here about euthanasia. Mm. 
which is the practice of intentionally ending life to eliminate pain and suffering. Yeah. You confused yourself. I thought we were talking about the youth in Asia. <laughs> I'm just also saying. an excellent topic. Yeah, maybe next week. Man, they're up and coming these days, I tell you. <laughs> right. Like K-pop. That's what I thought. We're doing K-pop. That's South Korea. Okay, sorry. This is um, insensitive. So please, go ahead. All right. So, yeah, where do I even go with what you just youth were talking about? I don't even yeah. know. You're All right, so euthanasia us. is what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And at currently, I'm just going to throw the stat out and then we can get into our bigger story. Currently, physician-assisted suicide is legal in 11 states, one of them being Montana, which is it's legal under a court ruling. Yeah, so, so it's still pretty stigmatized. Yeah, I think like Maine is in there, which I was surprised about. I, Oregon is like one that always stuck out to me because there's a you know a pretty popular case of somebody going to Oregon just for that reason and a few others. So yeah. So Dr. Kevorkian is the one that kind of brought this to national attention, right? Yeah. So I just have a quick question as you're saying that, and, and I wonder politically, and you may not have the answer to this, like, is this a conservative, like are the conservatives wanting to legalize this or is this a liberal type? I said all right, so I think we can answer that question. We can. Oregon. Oh. One of the most liberal okay. states you can possibly get to. Yeah, 100%, I would say, right. liberal. Because the cat, like, well, you'll probably get to later, the Catholic aspect, the religious aspect, it would be more ruling against this, right? Yeah, so it was like, keep, you would think part of the conservative agenda would be like, keep the government out of my business, but. And then there's like a, your body. See, I guess, I guess that makes sense. All right. I was just curious about that for a second, but go ahead. Yeah. What, what do you want to bio? We'll let's do the yeah, bio. Let's start off with a little bit of um, Dr. Kevorkian. Mm. So born in Pontiac, Michigan, May 26th, 1928. His parents came to America to flee the Armenian genocide of 1915, which, which I, I only mentioned that this isn't a history lesson, but it plays a role. I mean, his parents would tell him nightly stories of genocide, which is, you know, terrifying, but it made him question his belief in God, which plays a role in this also made him pretty comfortable or at least very familiar with the idea of death. So when he was younger, he was, his parents took him to an Orthodox church weekly. And as he started to question the existence of God, he, he started to question it because he believed that an all-knowing God would have prevented the Armenian genocide on his extended family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, his parents' experience was what ultimately started to make, make him question his own religious identity. And by the age of 12, he, started, he stopped attending church, which I think is interesting because, I mean, if his family was all attending church, you would think that, you know, he wouldn't necessarily have the option to just stop attending. Well, he was a brilliant kid. Yeah, uh, he except, you know, socially, socially not so good. And we'll see that throughout his life. He's not the most likable guy in the world. He doesn't do himself any favors with his personality, but he taught himself German, Russian, Greek and Japanese and among other, you know, very musically inclined, very artistic. And we can we can talk about that as t- as we get into his career. But I mean, interesting, interesting guy, interesting yeah. kid, at least. So, I mean, he's he's brilliant. He's able to teach himself all these languages. But like you said, he is not so great socially and he's alienated by his peers. Mm. They probably pick on him. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to... <laughs> they probably pick on him. What? 
I can't think of what right. they would call him. I can't do anything with his name. I'd be the worst to pick Kavork. Uh, got nothing for it. Okay. Well, maybe we should just move on to his career. Firstly, he becomes a pathologist, right? He he yeah. does well in medical school, becomes a pathologist. And a pathologist, what that is, is someone who they examine the bodies and the tissue to help better understand how diseases and illnesses work in the body. It's They help diagnose. They do a great deal yeah. of work helping in- people diagnose. It, it, within this role, I, it, you're right, though, he's he's brilliant, but he's not good at executing or selling his ideas because his ideas are very just like uh, out of the the normal way of thinking. So yes. you, the way he presents things, it may like reading it. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense or but it's very extreme and kind of like a little off putting. So one of the things he proposes in 1959, he writes this journal that proposes that prisoners condemned to death by the due process of law be allowed to submit by their own free choice to uh-huh. have medical examination under complete anesthesia uh, as a form of essentially like experimenting, right? Experimenting on live people. But with their consent. Right. Still, it's still, yeah. So it's rubbing his colleagues the wrong way, which makes sense. I mean, he does a lot of weird things like this. He, I don't know if you read that he experimented with blood transfusions with corpses, which is, you know, like you said, like on paper, it's like, okay. So if you get to the blood of a corpse and within a certain amount of time, maybe it's, that would be useful. This would be great. If we could find this, this would be great for war. Um, Vietnam was going on. So this, this could be super useful, but the way he goes about things, he's kind of thrift shopping this whole thing together. And he ends up giving himself hepatitis C in the process. And he's experimenting on his, on his friends and people that work with him. It just, he doesn't go about things the right way. Yeah. And he also, he goes back to the, the inmate thing with using death. He wants to use death row inmates for medical purposes uh, to harvest their organs after the, after they're put to death, to transplant plant to sick patients. His end goal is always noble Mm. is what I, is what I read when I, when I hear about his thoughts and his ideas, his end goal is always noble, but his means to get there is quite highly questionable. And I think that that describes him as a person. Right, right. I think I think his goal is always noble. And, and in this part of his life, he's talking mainly, you know, about the science. And, he's, and he doesn't want anything to do with religion or even emotion. He just thinks the science aspect of it is the most important thing. And that that's a good argument for now, but that kind of backs it up a little bit. Greg. I think I say this about everybody. He sounds so much like a person on the spectrum. Yeah, he does. Um, he sounds like he has that. A, he's a genius. He's a genius. <laughs> but emotionality doesn't play a factor in the the thoughts that he has and like the means to get there. It's almost like he doesn't have that ability to have the empathy that would help him understand why some of these are extreme ideas. So what's ironic about not having the emotions is when he starts to argue his point about euthanasia and and physician assisted suicide, emotion plays a huge role in making that palatable for the public. Doesn't it? I mean, it really does play a huge role. It's not just the science it's, it's, look at this person and you feel terrible for what they're going through. And it's the emotion that almost makes it okay. Another weird thing he did was he was into the idea of male in vitro fertilization. 
Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're hanging around your doctor friends and you're saying, I think I'm going to try to impregnate a man. And he had the guy picked out. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> no, well, it was it was his buddy. I can't remember his name, but he was a, a med tech that stayed with him and helped him procure supplies from thrift shops, which he would use on patients. So that's another thing that kind of rubs people the wrong way. He, he wasn't like he was so cheap. And Dave, I've heard you call yourself cheap, so I'm not trying to like hurt your feelings. I mean, I, I enjoy going to Savers, and yeah. Salvation Army. But what if you're going like? to Savers and he, and then you I see run a into doctor, doctor there? And yeah, well, you run into your whatever Dave's PCP is, and he's buying syringes, and then the next thing you know, you're in there and he's sticking one in your arm. It, it's not it's not a good look for a doctor. <laughs> it's just not. I don't know that they sell syringes at the thrift stores that I go to, but. I might so, be going to the wrong ones. He also he also had a weird cable access show. He tried to do a documentary based on Handel's Messiah, which is a, a piece of music based around the life of Jesus. Hmm. And he's an atheist. And see, all these things were flops. They, none of them worked out. And so he starts to shift his focus to somehow. Do you know how he gets interested in the concept of euthanasia? No, not really. There's this one story and they didn't point to it saying that this is the reason, but he early in his residency, he did have a patient, a woman who was dying of liver cancer. And he had wrote something along the lines of her stomach had distended so much and was so swollen that he could see through her, her skin became transparent. And he talked about the kind of pain that must've been. And so he decided, I am assuming between this and then the way his mother died really painfully, he thinks that there should be a more humane way for people to exit. You know, I'm going to say I don't, I don't disagree with him. I think yeah. that he brings up a great thought. You know, it, uh, just to go back a step, you had talked about the blood trans- ten, uh, transfusions. His purpose for that, like he brought that to the military because he thought they might be interested in doing that when, like during war times right Right. it's a while they're at battle because it's like a way of you know quickly helping you know wounded soldiers and utilizing the ones that have passed obviously uh but the pentagon was not interested shame on them they weren't they weren't open to this amazing (laughs) idea yeah but does this so i wish i knew i'm so ignorant that i don't know can you do that now? Is that a thing or is that still off the table? Cause I know, I know he tried it on a bunch of people and like half the people died. Why don't you revisit this, Greg? I'm going to get back to you on that. Go to the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. Guys, I've got a great idea. I just, have, <laughs> I, I just have to be able to sell it a little bit better. Somebody so needs to listen. I, I think we're going to have to start getting into why this idea is controversial. I don't want to go into the pros and cons and how we feel. And- let me, let me give us a little bit of a, a, walking up to or how this how this came about and then we can kind of get into that okay okay so in the 80s he starts he writing a series of articles for a german journal laying out his thinkings about the ethics of euthanasia so this was clearly after that uh experience he had that you were referring to greg in 1987 he starts advertising in a detroit newspaper i i this is i would love to see this this advertisement uh but he's advertising as a Physician consultant for death counseling. Like that's going to catch your eye when you see that ad- advertisement for sure. Um, the first 
public assisted suicide was Janet Atkins, who we're going to get back to later because there's a little fact about her. Well, thought, a, a little uh, tidbit about her. We'll learn later. Uh, she was a 54 year old woman diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and that took place in 1990. Now, he was uh, ch- charged, but the murder charges were dropped on December 13th of 1990 due to there being no laws in Michigan that said you there, you couldn't assist suicide at, at the time. time. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1991, uh, Michigan revoked his medical license and they made it very clear that because of the actions and his involvement in that, there was no way he was going to be practicing medicine um, or working with any patients in Michigan. So that's kind of like his start up into, you know, the 130 cases that we, that we end up seeing. I think, as you mentioned something about um, his writings in a German journal, I think something I hadn't quite thought of yet is the controversy or maybe the reason why this rubs people the wrong way is the eugenics program that the Germans and the Nazis had in World War II. Like they would kill the people, babies that were born deformed or people who were mentally ill or people that had really limiting physical ailments and they would kill them. And I think pe- that rubs people the wrong way. Anytime you're, and they would probably frame it as mercy killing and they, they would frame it as euthanasia. But now this is something completely different that we're talking about, but that's in the consciousness, especially, you know, at this time. Well, you know. Something else that might rub people the wrong way was that he was using a device called the Thanatron, which actually uh, translates to death machine. Yeah. And he made it himself from thrift shop stuff for real. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I made this. You know, we're talking about euthanasia. I I think maybe we can just briefly talk about how he does it. Okay. Uh, So he has a device, right, uh, that he's constructed. Uh, The individual pushes a button which releases drugs or chemicals that would end their own life. So that type of euthanasia is actually like they're doing it, right? They're in control. Uh, Two of the deaths out of like all the cases were assisted by means of a device which was um, delivering the drugs intravenously through thrift store uh, yeah. needles. No, I don't. I don't know that. Probably, maybe. And mm-hmm. other people were assisted uh, by a device which employed a gas mask fed by a canister of carbon monoxide, which he called Mercitron, mm. aka Mercy Machine. So he's just so weird. It doesn't help. And and you have to remember these early cases, these people, some of them are being like, so they're dying with dignity, but they're dying with dignity inside of his van. It like, it, it almost goes against, it's almost intrinsically or you just, you just leaked a little something right there. I'm sorry. So I, you just said it with inside his van. Yeah. So he had a Volkswagen van. Mm-hmm. That's where he was doing these. <laughs> yeah. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. That's, I think that's something worthwhile mentioning people don't i don't think they picture it i think they picture it a lot more medical and a lot more professional but i what something no, that you know what i picture, with the way this was going i picture this man coming into my home mm-hmm. and i'm like in my bed and he's he's up next to me and he's you know gently like rubbing my arm and saying yeah. see you on the other side brother yeah and you're like oh you're going to and you're holding your little and he's, shucky doll or whatever it is that's <laughs> and he says you. not a chance dave not a chance <laughs> Goodbye. Suck on this Deathatron or whatever it is. Mercitron. <laughs> yeah. Mercitron. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
do you want me to get into some criticism now? So yeah, like what are some criticism? Well, I mean criticism about him. Oh, okay, specifically because sure. yeah. I think that's important for us to to know because up until now we're painting a picture of a pretty great man. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but you know, I mean, uh, truth be like truth be told, like I'm, I guess I'm kind of showing my my colors already, but like you know, I think there's something to be said about a lot of you know his beliefs about this, and you know, I know it's a it's a very sensitive subject. Like I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of the stuff he's presented, but he, you know, so he had this code of ethics supposedly. Mm-hmm. After later, the Detroit Free Press claims that sixty percent of the patients who died with Kevorkian's help were not terminally ill, and at least thirteen had not complained of pain. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. That's a problem. Another criticism was that it was asserted that his counseling was too brief at least 19 patients dying less than 24 hours after their first meeting with him and lack of psychiatric exam in at least 19 cases, five of which involved people with histories of depression. But Kevorkian kind of rebutted that by saying that they were unhappy because of the reasons of the medical condition. The report claimed that uh, he had failed to refer at least 17 patients to pain specialists after they complained of chronic pain and sometimes uh, failed to even obtain a complete medical record for the patient. So at least three autopsies showed that the person had no physical sign of disease. That's kind of really sad. That it's, it's, it's almost is, like if you, can, if you can't do it yourself and you ne- actually need assistance for the suicide, I think that is ethically a lot better than someone who can do it themselves. Is that a, is that a, kind of a good point i'm picturing here people like 60 percent of people were able to do this by themselves obviously i I think there's there's something there with that it's it's so i mean the 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 law even for the states that allow it the law is from my understanding you have to have it's you have to have you have to be terminally ill yeah and you have to have at least two physicians confirm that you are terminally ill with, and I believe the time frame. and I'm sorry, I apologize if this isn't accurate for all the states. I believe the time frame is you have to have a prognosis of, I want to say six months uh, or less. Do you know if that's true, Greg? I don't know if that's true. It almost feels like it shouldn't be with certain I think it, it might be even less than that. I, I, I'm trying to, I'm now I'm like. I wish I had made this note. I can't remember if it was six months or six weeks, but it's something there's a, you're terminally ill and the prognosis is shorter and you have to have confirmation from at least two physicians. Now, what they're proving here is the lack of a lot of that knowledge Mm -hmm. Him acting without actually doing his due diligence to make sure that this person a is terminally ill. uh, B has been confirmed by multiple physicians and not just like one person told them that and see actually like ruling out other options and getting to know the person to make sure that they're, they're actually of the right state of mind to be making this decision. Right. And the lack of oversight of doing this illegally, if there were, so it's, it's why he ends up being in trouble for this. And, and part of it is I agree with him. Part of it, I don't, but there's, there's just not enough, um, checks and balances in place to make sure this is done safely. I want to go back because just to make, make this point crystal clear, Jana Adkins, who was that first uh, person that he had done this with, uh, he actually, she had been chosen, according to the reports, she had been chosen to perform this without even speaking to her. He actually spoke to her husband 
Mm-hmm. And then uh, when he met her two days prior to it actually happening, it was stated that he made no real effort to discover whether she truly wished to end her life. He just kind of followed through with it. This is kind of the 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 argument that's being made over and over again. It's, you know, that there just wasn't any enough due diligence on his end. Um, and he makes this statement that also doesn't really make it better for him because at one point he in, he's interviewed by Sanja Gupta, who yep. I think we, we still hear about today. Oh, yeah. Um, during this time. CNN uh, medical correspondent. Yeah. Uh, but he says, what difference does it make if someone is terminally ill? No, if someone is terminal, we are all terminal. In his, in his view, a patient had to be suffering, but did not have to be suffering to be terminally ill, to be assisted in committing suicide. So that statement doesn't necessarily help the arguments that are being made because he's kind of saying like, I don't necessarily care if they're terminally ill from a disease. We're all going to die at some point. I can kind of read through the lines and understand what he's saying in that though. The one of the reasons why I sort of lean in favor of this is so even if it's, so maybe it's not going to kill you, but it might kill what makes you, you, you know, like if you're like a, uh, an athlete and you get ALS and, and you can't even swallow or, or, you know, clean your own body, then that, that loss of dignity might, now you might not be dying for another four or five years, but what made you, you is gone. And maybe that's fair. Or, or people that are in like one of these locked in comas where all they can move is their eyes and they can hear and feel and see, but they're not allowed to participate in the world around them. Maybe they can live for years and years, but are they really living? I think the quality of life comes into question here. Well, Greg, let me ask you this then. Does okay. that still stand with some of the other reports? There was an article by The Economist that suggested that even though some had uh, worsening illnesses, it was not usually terminal. Autopsy showed that five people had no diseases at all. Mm. Little over a third were in pain and some presumably suffered from no more than hypochondria or depression. So that's asking whether or not Kevorkian was right. I'm just talking from the stance of physician assisted suicide done the right way. Kevorkian made a lot of mistakes. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, let me ask you this question under the description of what I had said with like, you know, two physicians Mm -hmm. confirming this person's terminally ill, uh, you know, the prognosis being less than, you know, what they consider to be an appropriate amount of time. Is that where you're saying you can prescribe to uh, as far as like that being agreeable or you, could you even expand on that? I would expand on it to the point where this for me would have to be a panel, maybe a panel of a certain number of doctors, maybe three doctors, and you know it when you see it, right? It's like it, you would just, a case-by-case case situation, a decision. That sounds rather subjective. And it, and it sounds terrible me saying that too, because you're still taking the autonomy away from someone to do what they want with their own, like, they, like their self-determination. We, I, we talk about I that think that time. puts too much faith in people. To be able to make a decision like that. And like I can almost picture it going both ways where sometimes, like you said, that autonomy would be taken away from somebody that really is determined that that's the avenue they need to go. And at other times, they would grant it to someone who maybe would have the opportunity at some point to improve or have a different 
change of mind at some point. Well, that's a funny thing that you're talking about there. That's one of the drawbacks of this because incurable disease, there's lots of diseases that were incurable and then one day they're curable. So it's this thing you're, you're robbing yourself the opportunity of hope. You're robbing other people who will be affected by your death and maybe people who, I mean, this is more of like a, an existential sort of, I don't know, but the people's whose lives you affect in the, in your future I mean, do you have any responsibility to them at all? Is that, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a very so, difficult conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, all right. I hear what you're saying. I think there's so many different scenarios that could be thrown at you that might challenge that thought. Sometimes, like, so the way it stands for those states that it's legal, I can't, I kind of am completely comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, like you have this short period of time. The prognosis is rather short. It's terminal. It's, you know, you're, you're of clear choice to say like this. I want to go out with dig- death. Death with dignity is, is the phrase used, right? Yeah. I love that phrase. Cause I think that that's actually something that feels important. There's so many diseases that really just make somebody they, they take everything out of a person. I've seen it in my own family. MS is really tough. Um, ALS. Uh, there's there. You're right. There's whatever, you know, Robin Williams, when that's a great example of, you know, it's not that these people don't love themselves in their lives. They, they love their lives so much that they can't bear to see what they know as themselves destroyed by a disease. They don't want to see that. They want to have some control over this uncontrollable phenomenon that's happening to them. And they want to yeah. take, take some power back in their life. And I, I, it's hard to argue against that in some cases. And it's, I harder, think, it's harder for us to accept it as the living than it is for the person dying, I would imagine. What about this? Like, why is it okay for us to decide for our unconscious mind? So why can we decide right now? I can write on my, on my license or whatever you would write it. Do not resuscitate leave me alone, take me off all the machines if this happens to me. But when you're actually going through it, you're not allowed to say, I don't want this. You can yeah. only decide that ahead of time. That's, yeah. th- there's something strange about that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. We put ourselves in this impossible to imagine scenario and say like, oh, I'm going to make this, this is what I would want to happen. We have no idea. I say it all the time to my kids. Like if I, and I don't want to be crass, but like if you say, I don't, don't resuscitate me. Well, if, I, your kids. If, if I'm in a position where, you have to, my, my children are, are, you know, not to be crass, but people use that example all the time. Like wipe me. They have to wipe me. I don't push me on a, a don't block you, of ice to see or something. Don't you say it every day as you walk out the door to go to work. Hey kids, I'll see you later. Remember, don't resuscitate me. <laughs> yeah. Anything happens, pull that plug. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. All right. Well, God forbid nothing. Let's, you want to know something interesting about this? especially from the Jack of Orkin where I was growing up is like the religious argument. Now there's something extremely interesting where religion will tell you that if you commit suicide, your soul is condemned to hell. But, and I, you know, I can, I can already get the little tingles of the Catholic guilt about the things I'm about to say. Saul, who is a very famous figure in the Bible fell on his sword quote that's a quote from the bible i don't i don't think he was just the worst warrior ever that he fell in onto his sword he he committed suicide and so did samson do you know the story of samson he goes blind and he pushes that whole building down and all it all crumbles on him that's committing suicide and jesus decided 
when and how he was going to die in a way. Right. He yes. allowed, he, he allowed himself. And, and that's whoa. So, right. He died for our sins. Right. And I, and listen, I'm not saying anything bad about Jesus. would never do it. Paul Sharpentier would, I mean, he'll hang up on this podcast right now. He'll never listen again, but I'm just saying like, we, we have this idea of, being able to choose to die with dignity for the right reasons. And even our, some of our religious figures are, have done this. And I, I wouldn't call, obviously you don't call it suicide, but I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about that Dave? So it was like, it was Jesus the first example of euthanasia. It was active euthanasia. It was so active euthanasia is killing a patient by active means. Uh, so was Punctious Pilate, like the first assisted um, yeah, he was like, he was "You sure you want to do this?" And she's like, "I, I, I have like, to do this." Jesus, this is gonna hurt. This isn't good. Don't do this. And he's it's like, and it's, "It's for their sins." Well, you know, Dave. I mean, we got to move on from this, dude. I'm gonna get struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> you said a comment earlier about how this relates to another uh, religious view, and it's like you know about people's bodies. Yeah, and it does come back to that, right? And that's what this is about. Yeah. It's about us having autonomy over our own bodies. I, I guess, I guess what I'm asking you, if I don't know if you're about to answer it, but what, what is the sin in suicide? Why is it bad? So that would be a religious question, wouldn't yeah. it? I don't because know. What- I, I think, I don't know, like, obviously, cause you're talking about sin, but I, I mean it from like, you know, from a right or wrong standpoint, we're talking about the reason why it's a sin is because we're essentially ending a life that like, we're taking it as if, we gave ourselves life and we did not. Right. Mm. So from the li- religious standpoint, we were given life. So who are we to, to remove it? Right. So it's and, not, it's not ours to take. In a yes. Sense. Okay. Yeah. You're exact. That's, that's where I take it. So on a religious, uh, and that's kind of where this argument comes to play, I think. And that's why this whole euthanasia would be so wrong. Right. Because again, we're, we're, having someone assist us with ending our life. That's not ours to end. Right. And it's also this idea that your, your, your life is part of a, a, a plan. And if you cut that plan short, you've interfered with the plan for your life, God's plan for your life. Sure. And maybe you're, you're putting into motion things that aren't supposed to go a certain way. And maybe, maybe part of that's true. Maybe there's something to that. Um, not even speaking from a religious standpoint, I think there is something to but, that. You know, the best example of this, whole this whole argument is and you know i'm not remembering the the person's name as i'm not going to go into the whole full story but it's the the girl who had terminal cancer that you know went to oregon knowing she only had this short period of time to live and wanted to go out with dignity knowing that if she remained alive for any longer it was going to involve pain it was going to involve suffering her life was over no matter what there was no Mm. treatment that was going to cure her so she goes to Oregon to die peacefully with her family, with her partner. And how beautiful is that? Yeah. Somebody who knows that their life, if they don't take this step, is going to end miserably. You know, they could probably still recreate some of that. They could probably still have their family there, you know, her, her husband there or boyfriend, whoever it was. You could probably still do that. But the way she decided to do it was like, I'm going to turn this thing that's going to be really horrible for everybody to witness and to watch and to go through. And I'm actually going to turn into this thing that's rather peaceful. Mm -hmm. And we're going to spend our last minutes together, not thinking about how 
horrible everything feels, but actually just kind of resting and appreciating the time, this last few minutes together. I think it's beautiful. I do too. And and I'm, I'm, you're making me think of people who, you know, maybe they've been through a few rounds of, of chemo and radiation and they say, you know what, I'm not doing it again. I'm going to just let things happen the way they're supposed to happen. But it does, does, doesn't that feel, is that similar or it doesn't, to me, it feels very different than what's going on here with like euthanasia, euthanasia and the, the physician. So what you're talking about is somebody actively making the decision. I'm no longer going to go through treatment Mm. because I don't want to deal with the side effects of treatment. Right. Right. And you're right. I think that's another argument. That's like another layer to the argument. Like, is that okay? There, there There is actually treatment that could possibly extend their life. Not like, you know, in all honesty, a lot of cases, it, you know, the potential for something to return or reoccur or, or it just extends it a little more is always there. But like that kind of goes against this, right? Well, it goes against the idea of it extends their life, but lessens their quality of life. Yeah. So quality of life is the key. No, actually what you said earlier is the key. Autonomy is the key. Mm, The people's ability not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm actually agreeing with the point you made. Yeah. It's people's ability to decide what my course of life should be and how I want to live it. Yeah. And like when we're dictating, like, no, you have to go through those steps. If you want to do this, you have to receive treatment. And then now your you know, prognosis is only this amount of time. So now you have this option like that feels wrong. It does. And it also feels wrong almost advocating for this from our point of view, because we spent, we devoted our lives to preventing suicide. So it's a weird, it's a weird conversation to have. Is it, is it strange that I personally don't view this as suicide in like, I know like that's, I know it's wrong because it is mm-hmm. suicide, but it feels different. No. And that's the thing when I, when I brought up Jesus and Saul and, and that's why I brought up these religious things, because it's not suicide. if. If you're if you're taking a choice and you're doing it for what you think is the greater good, either for someone else or for yourself, like if you're if you know if I'm on a bridge somehow and and if I you know my teenage son is holding my hand and we're we're dangling there and if I if I let go he's gonna survive and he's gonna be able to pull himself up but if I keep holding on we're both gonna go if I let go I've just committed suicide but did I right. You know, oh, if we watch that in an action movie or in any movie, we'd be like, oh, he's a hero. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that movie, The Good Son. That's what I was thinking. When she's holding the two kids (laughs) and she lets her own kid go. Yeah. Oh, that's rough. That's a tough call. I don't know if I'd be able to do that. Even if my kid was the worst, probably (laughs) let the other kid go. (laughs) Who's Macaulay Culkin? (laughs) Yeah. So, all right. Well, should we get into the legal, why he ended up um, being convicted? Because he, like you said, he he had been to court a handful of times, a bunch of times, and he always got off because they would always show these videos of the family and and the person and what they were going through and and they would get the jury's sympathy. But finally, the prosecutors decided to go with the plan where they just, they just, they dropped the charges of assisted suicide and they just went with second degree murder. Right. And that way they wouldn't have a legal reason to show those, those videos because murder doesn't depend on 
a person's health, right? If, if someone's about to die and you go kill them, you're still a murderer. So there was those, those videos weren't relevant. And that's what ended up getting him convicted. I think that's right. kind of a sham and it's kind of messed up. But in, at the same time, I think that whether or not you're for this um, philosophy, I think that Kevorkian needed to be stopped. So, from, well, yeah, be, but he did, you know, this is, these are reports made against him. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't, we don't hear a ton of like his, you know, rebuttals to these reports. So yeah. it's, it would be interesting to know like everything just to know everything. He does say though, it was almost impossible to follow his own code of ethics or his own, um, like his way of doing it. Like people made it impossible for him. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to know what he meant by that. Like what things roadblocks came into place that prevented him from doing some of the due diligence that needed to be done. Um, so he was convicted in 1999. So he, he started around 1990 with that first case that I mentioned earlier. And he was doing them right up until 1998. 130 a lot. from 1990 to 1998. He was a busy man. Mm-hmm. So what about the idea of him being a doctor and taking that Hippocratic oath, which, which essentially is, it says, I mean, once he a doctor, though, he was like kind of like revoked and like i don't know yeah kind of yeah. had to travel around and it, like, it's almost maybe he shouldn't maybe this shouldn't come from someone who is a doctor maybe it needs to be a different profession because uh, to do no harm right and he was always talking about keeping the emotion out of it and if you and if you keep complete completely keep the emotion out of what you're yeah. doing as a doctor your job is to keep an organism alive at all costs yeah. so yeah. he he can't say that he's keeping the emotion out of it while relying on emotion to make his case. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So he, he only served eight years out of a 10 to 25 year sent prison sentence. He was released uh, in 2007 in the condition that he was not to offer advice about, <laughs> participate in, or be present or act at, in any type of euthanasia event. And he was also not allowed to promote or talk about the procedure of assisted suicide. So, I mean, this man, like, that. it feels like he gets, he gets off kind of easy considering how much they want to, like, peg him for this, right? How many times he's been tried and he ends up being let off. But he, he does not, like, live very much longer. I think he dies in, what, 2011, I believe? Yeah, right after a year after that movie depicting his life came out, which I did end up watching. Did you? Oh, I didn't see it. I didn't even uh, know. You don't know Jack. It's on HBO. It was from 2010. It was actually Al Pacino was Jack Forky. How did how did that? It it wasn't slide off my radar. It, well, I don't know. I I, I I feel like I'm I now that you're saying it, it's like bringing up a memory. But like I definitely haven't seen it. I got to watch that. It's amazing. I mean, this is gonna be the hottest take of all hot takes. Al Pacino doesn't do it for me. I, I just didn't think he, he's always Al Pacino. Yeah. I, I you know, so he, he Scarface, was a big man. Scarface. A soccer. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's all you can see. But Jack, you know, that was the only time he wasn't Al Pacino actually. And I think that's why that movie stands out. So in the uh, most anticlimactic ending, mm-hmm. he does not euthanize himself. He was diagnosed with liver cancer which they believe may have been caused by the hepatitis C. He that He gave it to himself. Uh, he was hospitalized with kidney problems and pneumonia. The conditions grew worse, and he ended up dying uh, from thrombosis eight days after turning 83. So he lived, he lived 
he led a long life. 80, you know, 83 is nothing to scoff at. Yeah, his his good. tombstone reads, he sacrificed himself for everyone's rights. I think mm-hmm. that's a pretty fitting quote. I think that is ultimately what he was fighting for. I think I do, like I said, I do think there was the at the ends of all of his arguments he made and all the things that he tried to do was noble. I think he just didn't know how to navigate things in a way that well, he never would have been able to. Like a lot of his ideas never would have flown. He tried, he did his best. <laughs> Uh, an interesting little side note, his 1968 Volkswagen Type 2 van, which you had mentioned earlier, uh, was brought was bought by paranormal investigator Zach Baggins. Oh, my God. From Ghost Adventurers. That's the guy that yells at all the ghosts. Yeah. Ugh. The worst thing you can do to a ghost. Come on. You don't want to do that. Greg will tell you. you don't, don't yell at the ghost. If, if, first of all, you, you pretend you didn't see them. That's the best approach. Right. And hope they go away. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 how you do it. You don't start screaming at them. That's the worst idea ever. Uh, yeah. So I think that you're right when you say the idea is there, but the way he went about it was all wrong. And he lost credibility to me when he. So I, when I think of physician assisted suicide, I think of ALS. I think of people who are who once had use of their body in a very specific way. And some people can get these diseases and, you know, Parkinson's and all these diseases and and still have these great lives and find meaning in their lives. And some people can't. So I think that an option, if you, if your life has taken a turn where you are not, you don't even recognize yourself as you anymore and you want to path out. I think it's hard to say, but I feel like you should be afforded that right. I think self-determination is an existential human right. And whatever the path you want to take with your life is, is ultimately up to you. We want, we want to say that people should have responsibility in every, in every aspect of their life. Your, whatever happens to you is your responsibility. I mean, that's got to go all the way through to the end, right? Yeah. Ironically, the person that he ended up getting convicted uh, of murder for had ALS. So, I mean, it was a legitimate. Yeah, that was a legitimate case. one. You know, I was just thinking of something as you were talking about that. And like, here's an example of someone of like a reason not not to do this, like someone who shouldn't like, let's say because you said self-determination and, you know, it made me think of a specific character from a film. Okay, uh, just use that as reference, Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas. Okay, great movie. This this man is determined he is going to die. He's going to drink himself to death. Now, he why does he decide to do that? Because his life in the gutters he feels there's no way out he's an alcoholic he's just going to allow it to happen i would say that in that case if this were to ever be presented i would not say that that's a person that should be a candidate for this because at any point in time during his journey from you know when he gets to las vegas and decides he's going to drink himself to death the opportunity that he might change his mind or an opportunity might come his way it could change everything And there's no like definite that he was going to die or had to die. I think it's different. And I think that's kind of like where I I fall on this. If there's like a definite, definitive answer that this person's death is, there's no escaping it. This is going to happen one way or another. Why, who are we to tell them how they have to go out? So, right. 
I yes. I don't. I think just because a person has a death wish doesn't mean they should be a candidate for for death. If we're yeah, gonna go, if we're gonna go by like rules around this, I, I think what what I would say is, you know, if you may be done with your life, but that doesn't mean that your life is done with you. There could be something yeah. in your future that's that's just this. You you know you were meant for something bigger. You were meant to help someone else. You were meant for. And I'm, I firmly or you just that. might find happiness in something. You could. Or you might find importance or meaning in something, and your life may be needed to get to this point in order to, to find that. So some people, I think, are just so dead set that like nothing good can happen, and that's mm-hmm. not like there's no way to know that. Well, I mean, we have to pass that message because it's a true message, and that's ultimately what we're doing. Um, but they also but- are looking for something that they don't understand that they have to find themselves. They can't it's not going to come to them. So, you know, I guess we're getting a little bit off topic here, but I'm like, I'm kind of talking about those people that walk around and there's a lot of us out there that do that. But like, we just feel like, Oh, nothing good's coming my way. The world's against me. But what they forget is that whole Victor Frankl, uh, like man search for meaning type deal. It's, it's actually, we have to figure out what our, our purpose is. And we all have, we all have something that we can find meaning out of, or we can, we can find the reason to live another day for. Absolutely. We, we both agree there. It's just my advocacy for this would be that I don't know if I have the courage, if I had an, an illness like ALS to wait for it and find it. If, if I've lost everything that makes me, me, and I can only write you messages yeah. on the screen oh, no. with my eyes. It's, it's so like, I'm, I'm totally agreeing with that. Yeah. aspect. Like if, if it's a terminal disease that like ultimately is going to make me a shell of the person that I want to be and who I am, then yes, I just, I'm kind of thinking more of those like broader spectrum, like should other scenarios be included? And I don't know that I can always justify the other scenarios. I think I like I think I like the kind of let's come up with a criteria that yeah. seems like it makes sense to me, I guess. Yeah, well the criteria and it has to be I still I still go with the board of doctors or board of not just doctors, maybe like a social worker or a doctor, like a, a, a few different professions. You know, maybe a a, a therapist. I don't so know. you're saying you don't think that it has to be like a 6-month prognosis. No, because that might be setting someone up for torture. You know, yeah. this is getting depressing. Let me ask you this, Dave. <laughs> could you, could you, would you be able to assist someone, put someone out of their misery if it was, if it was all they wanted? I do think I could. Yes. Wow. I do. I actually found it appealing to try to do hospice work. I just never got to it. Well, hospice is interesting because that's the alternative to this, isn't it? In a way, mm-hmm. I don't know how new hospice is, but that helping it's another way of helping people die with dignity and yeah. and helping them realize they're not a burden. You know, it's a pleasure to, so, to help them. And it's, it's interesting because I do have the pleasure of working with some aging individuals who have um, some developmental disabilities and some, you know, physical disabilities. And I watch them and I think about their inability to communicate sometimes and how like even if this was something that they were interested in they wouldn't be able to tell someone yeah that's mm. and that's sad to me because sometimes i watch their you know 
the life that they're living. And I'm like, wow, I wonder how this would feel if I was in you know, their position. Would I want to continue this way? Yeah. And I, I know that we don't even have time to get into it, but it's almost like that there's the, there's a slippery slope argument there too, where the criteria, where, where does it end? Where, how does it loosen? Does it, does it almost become this? In, we know how the world works, Dave, especially in our profession. Everyone talks about how important mental health is, but we get a call after six weeks saying, does that really person, does that person really need to see you every week? Would this turn into the kind of thing where it's, Hey, this person qualifies for assisted suicide. They've been hanging around too long and they're costing us a ton of money and it, almost like a forced thing. You can see this kind of thing happening. Yeah. Which is, and, and you know what I was just thinking about as we're saying this, like, so you know how the argument was made about a lot of his patients having depression mm. and he would make the rebuttal that like, well, yeah, they're depressed because of their medical conditions, but like, all right. So I wonder if they're also saying like, if someone has a history of depression or some other mental health disease, uh, illness, does that make them now not able qualify. to qualify to make the decision that they want to move forward with assisted suicide because they feel like they're not of the right you know, frame of mind to make a judgment call like that. I wonder if that, I would have to look into that more. Mm. That's messed up too, because that's just someone who was feeling something at a certain time and, and wanted help for it. And then you have to carry this diagnosis around, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. I mean, how would you expect somebody who's like terminally ill and even considering assisted suicide to not be experiencing depression or have, have had some bouts of depression at some point? I mean, impossible, yeah. right? I would imagine. All right, Dave. Well, here's a cheery one. Hopefully, we're doing uh, something on you know Pippi Longstocking or, or rainbows. Oh, or, we have a we have a good one next week. Okay, it's gonna be uplifting, sort of. Oh, okay. I wouldn't say uplifting. Actually, I made that up. Okay, I was gonna say that's that's rare. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, hope you enjoyed this conversation, and we would love to hear other people's thoughts about this and not just ours and we are always open to hearing different opinions than our own so if you have one please feel free to drop us a line on social media or wherever else in person come to our office and tell us how we suck yeah, yeah. whatever just just don't put it online just yeah <laughs> whatever come you to it. tell us in person appreciate that tell us in person say it to my face <laughs> <laughs> so thank you everybody for listening have a great night We'll see you next week. See you next week.